have with us this morning, uh, Reverend uh, David Robbins. Um, he's uh, currently at uh, uh, Apple Valley OPC. He's been worshiping there and uh, laboring there uh, alongside uh, Pastor Hartley. Um, but he and his family are um, preparing to depart for Southern Europe as the Lord calls upon them. He's going to tell us more about that as we uh, join together for a meal after worship to which everyone is uh, invited to come and uh, not only to have good food, but to hear from Pastor Robbins about the upcoming uh, assignment, the call that he'll uh, be on. Uh, but for now, it's a great joy to welcome him as a minister of the word, as a co-laborer, and as one whom the Lord uh, has called to the high task of proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so with that, let's welcome our brother in the Lord as he opens God's word for us tonight. Thank you. It's certainly a joy to be with you this evening, and I hope that you can hear me out there. Are we doing okay in the back? For our reading of consecutive reading of scripture this evening, we're looking at Proverbs chapter 13, verses 11 through 15. And I invite you to hear this instruction for our closer walking with the God who is worthy of all praise. Proverbs 13, 11 through 15. Wealth gained hastily will dwindle. But whoever gathers little by little will increase it. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. Whoever despises the word brings destruction on himself, but he who reveres the commandment will be rewarded. The teaching of the wise is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. Good sense wins favor, but the way of the treacherous is their ruin. This is God's holy and perfect word. And now we come to ask our God to give us help as we prepare to receive his word in the preaching and reading of it. Let's pray together. Most gracious and holy God, as you have spoken all things into existence and continue by the Son, the Word himself, to uphold them, we pray that we who come this evening to gather little by little to learn from the teachings of the wise, to gain instruction, that we might be up by your Spirit be taught. And know those things that are freely given to us of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. And from that fullness, give you the adoration and praise that you deserve and long for the day. When all creation will rightly and all together give you that praise, which is your due. Come to us, O Spirit of God, and enlighten our eyes, else we sleep the sleep of death. O our God, grant that we would hear 
and truly be instructed by your spirit as we hear your word read and preached. For we ask in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. Psalm 150 is our text this evening. The end of the end of the Psalms and the end of the end of praise in the Psalms. Hear this invitation, this command, this great yearning. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. I think just in the listening, I I hope at least that you caught what the psalm is about, what it invites you to, and I hope it will be pressed upon all of our hearts as we receive it. The praises of our gracious and triune God. Here we are at the kind of, if you will, hallelujah chorus of the Psalms. And you'll notice if you turn back a page or two perhaps to Psalm 146 that it opens with praise the Lord. And it closes with praise the Lord. And if you keep going, Psalm 147, 148, 149, and as we've already read, Psalm 150, begin and end with praise to God. It's a kind of, as some commentators put it, if you remember your musical notation, those of you who've taken lessons, it's a kind of crescendo. It's a, to use a beautiful Italian word, a sforzando. It's a fortissimo. Everything is supposed to get really loud at this point, filled with praise, heaven and earth, all together rejoicing in the praise of the triune God, which is a contrast, isn't it, to the rest of the Psalter. Think of all the trials and the laments, the sorrow, the grief, of our experience, this is where it lands. Aren't you glad? Not all is vanity under the sun, but praise, praise, praise. 13 times in this psalm to the living God. That is the purpose of your experiences. That is the end of all creation. Everything that exists, everything that happens has this one great design, the praise of the true and living God who has made covenant with us in Jesus Christ. The people around you that you work with, the people who go to school with you, the people that you meet in the street, all have an idea about the purpose of life. And maybe, well, we are in Minnesota, so perhaps it's fun, or the Vikings, I don't know. For some of us, it may be seemingly something nobler. Our kids, that's the purpose, our future, Maybe it's progress, achievement. The only worthy goal and purpose of everything that is and everything in you and all of your experience and all of your ambitions, the only worthy goal is the praise of the living God. That's what creation is really all about. It has this singular trajectory from beginning to end that God would be praised. This is really the focus, isn't it, ultimately of redemption? As we come in, as we've heard in the confession of our faith, also the pardoning mercies of our God, 
isn't the purpose of Christ coming into the world to save sinners that we together would join our hearts to glorify and to enjoy him as new creatures who can really offer praise to a worthy and living God. That is the end, isn't it? Isn't that what our catechism says? That's the chief end. And it's not just the chief end of mankind to glorify and to enjoy God. It is the purpose of everything that is. That's what the psalm tells you, tells me. And if you could stand, as it were, at the edge of the door creaking open to behold the beatific vision, heaven's gates opening, you would hear praise. You would hear praise. That's what we do this evening. That's what we are called to do in the psalm. That is what our God requires, and that is what will make us finally happy. Now, I want you to notice two things, and the psalm addresses both of these. The first is the worthiness of God for praise, and that he will at last, secondly, receive all the praise. Verses 1 and 2 introduce us to the worthiness of God. I'm going to flesh this out in two ways, if you like. Very simply, his acts that are worthy and his character that is worthy, which I'll address more briefly. But I want you to notice his worthiness to be praised by all creatures, by all people, at all times, in all places, and in all circumstances. But as we come to consider that, and again, 13 times in this psalm, that's repeated. It's a command. It's an imperative. It's something that is drawing you to do something. Our hearts, such as they are, even new creatures might secretly be asking the question, what about me? Why does God deserve all this praise? I mean, after all, isn't it possible that, well, to quote the sound of music, somewhere in my life or childhood, I might have done something good. Don't I deserve a little bit, a taste of glory? In our more sanctified moments, is it possible that we deny, no, I would never think like that. Your life and mine, however, tells the story of what we think is worthy of praise. We speak about the things that we consider worthy of praise. Pay attention to what comes out of your mouth, proceeding from your heart over the course of this week, and you will be able to discern, like I unfortunately too often do as well, that I need to be re-persuaded that God is the one who deserves the praise and not me. Well, why? Why is he worthy of such praise? Praise. The psalmist gives us an answer that is perhaps not immediately obvious. His mighty act of coming and meeting with his people. This is what verse 1 addresses. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. You notice there are, if you like, locational coordinates for praise. Where is to be done? Wherever God is, his sanctuary, the heavens, that's where he ought to be praised. This helps us then to begin to understand what is his mighty act that calls us into adoration and praise. Because he is, this is the thrust of it, he is not far from us. He is actually near to us, infinite in his majesty and glory, transcendent beyond all of his creatures, beyond all thought and understanding. He is actually with us. Isn't that one of the grand themes of all of Scripture? God with us. God particularly coming to us in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Consider just what that means. 
and I'm going to unfold that, I hope, with more clarity as we come a little bit along, but think of a God who is so holy, so transcendently pure in all his thought and desire, who will come even to you and me at Mission OPC tonight with all of our glory-seeking, our thirst after our own lusts, our desire to build ourselves up and our own little kingdoms, and knowing all of that treachery against his good and right instruction and even against the word of his Son, whom he has given for our salvation, he comes to you anyway. If you and I met the worst enemy that we ever had, somebody who had done the very worst thing to you, can you imagine that? Maybe some of you have some enemies like that. Maybe you can think of somebody who's done something absolutely atrocious, hard to even speak about. You and I would probably not, as our first instinct, have a desire to go to such a person, would we? Let me come to you. Let me restore you. Let me have fellowship with you. Let us enter into a renewed relationship. But this is what your God does. The God of all the universe who created all things against whom we have sinned in his high holiness. We who were made to walk with him, to bear his image, to have fellowship with him, having turned our back on him, what do we see him doing from the very initial moments after our first parents fell? Not pronouncing judgment, but coming into a garden, seeking his people again. Observe how this plays out in the psalm. There are four ways I'm going to hopefully show you in which he comes to meet with us, in which he expresses the very heart of his heart to come and draw near to a people unworthy of anything like his fellowship. He comes to meet with you and with me in worship. Notice this, first of all. He meets with us in the act of our worship. That's what we're doing this evening. Think of the types and shadows of the old covenant, the earthly temple, the tabernacle, and notice how there is a comparison drawn, and really those images are brought forward in verse 1. Praise God in his sanctuary. What sanctuary? Well, in a way, there's a comparison, isn't there, to that sanctuary that he inhabits, the mighty heavens in the latter part of the verse. But there is also a very direct reference here to the earthly sanctuary where he promised to come and meet with his people. A comparison, then, between earth and heaven, his presence upon the earth, his domain in the firmament, the holy of holies. What a contrast, isn't it? Here's this little place, a little enclosure in a little tent or a temple, a building, where God meets while he also inhabits and goes far beyond the furthest extent of heaven itself. This is the God that we meet with this evening, a God who ought to be praised in the mighty heavens. And the word there, firmament, is uniquely used in Genesis chapter 1 and in that strange vision of Ezekiel chapter 1 where Ezekiel beholds God in the firmament. There he is, just as we see him working all things according to his will in creation in Genesis 1. Above that expanse in Ezekiel's vision is the Son of Man reigning over all things, the Lord Jesus Christ. His throne beyond all the heavens itself 
even beyond all thought and mind. That's the nearest, as it were, the nearest place that we could ever come in the universe to a literal physical representation of God at home, God enthroned. The heavens are his heavens. But compare again, notice what happens here in the temple. Earth and heaven come together in the sanctuary. Think of what we read in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 5. They, that is the tabernacle and its furniture, serve as a copy and a shadow, if you like a reenactment, of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. Here's the point. That earthly place of worship in the Old Covenant was patterned after, was, as it were, a picture of the God who inhabits eternity. Every facet, every image laid out in the tabernacle and the temple, all those types and shadows are meant to give you a sense of your sight and real experience of God enthroned. That's what the tabernacle and the temple show you. It is like a picture of heaven. It's as if the priest walking into the holiest place comes right into heaven itself, meeting with God. And God really did come and meet with his people there, didn't he? It's striking. That glory cloud of God comes down. He meets with his people in victory in a tent. What a worthy God. A God who will come and actually meet with unworthy people must be so, not just holy, but so mighty and good that he could come into our unholiness, remain unsullied by that unholiness, and bring us into a true meeting with him. Well, that earthly type has to reflect the heavenly reality. In every part it does, Notice what, it, what happens in Revelation. We find the unceasing worship of God by the angels, by the glorified saints in Revelation chapters 4 through 5. And then we find also later in Revelation 15, something that you find reflected in the psalm. There are instruments. They hold, it says, the harps of God in their hands. The earthly sanctuary with these instruments that are recorded in this psalm is reflective of the worship of God in his glory. There is a mirroring, if you like, and a coming together between earth and heaven, a unity of earth and heaven. Isn't that what we pray for in the Lord's Prayer? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, what is happening in heaven? What is there mirrored in the old covenant in the tabernacle and in the temple? The praise of the living God is what's happening in heaven. What is happening as we meet them in worship? We are entering in to meet with the God who is so high and holy and yet receives the praise of undeserving sinners. That indicates so clearly, doesn't it? There is a new regime. All things are being made new in the Lord Jesus Christ. In the New Covenant, think about that worship. Okay, we're not entering in this evening to stand outside of a tabernacle or a temple, but Jesus Christ 
is the one through whom, by whom we worship. He is God with us, is he not? God coming to meet with us, God condescending to us. And as we worship through him, who is the way, the truth, and the life, what we do is actually heavenly. Not seen in the same way, but with greater power and greater glory, we enter in with the angels behind the veil to do what takes place in heaven as we worship. In popular culture and popular evangelical culture particularly, and if you go to Walmart, you'll find this, I suspect, even here in Minnesota, you go to the book section and you will probably find a book on heaven. And there are fanciful descriptions, and there are all kinds of ideas, and speculations, and dreams, and visions. But if you want to know what heaven is like, come and worship. This is the heavenly reality where God's people actually meet with him, made new, acceptable through the blood of Christ, and have every reason to adore him who comes, who comes to you. But it isn't just the act of worship I'm hastening on here. God also meets with us personally in the incarnate Lord Jesus, who is, as I trust you are already hearing regularly from this pulpit, the fulfillment of that Old Testament temple. Consider what Paul says in Colossians 1, 19 and 20. In him, that is in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell through him to reconcile to himself. Notice this. To reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Did you catch it? What happens in the tabernacle, in the temple, God meeting with man, earth and heaven united, that prayer that we, that petition that we make in the Lord's Prayer actually being answered is addressed in the Lord Jesus Christ. He himself in his cross in his resurrection, is the place where heaven and earth are reconciled to each other. What a beautiful thing. This is what the psalmist is anticipating. Yes, it's, only, it's, it's kind of there, shadowy, I suppose. But in his person, we have the proof of God's worthiness. Jesus is the whole linchpin of the praises of God. Well, as if that were not even enough. It really isn't, because God is determined to come and meet with us corporately and individually in our worship, as Paul says in Ephesians 3.17, as Christ comes and lives in our hearts by faith. That temple, that sanctuary, the meeting place of God, earth and heaven coming together, consider the most unfathomable mystery. It really is astonishing. 1 Corinthians 6 tells us, for you, think of this, for you, and you probably would never say this of yourself. I'm sure you wouldn't. Or if you did, it would probably be blasphemy, right? 1 Corinthians 6, your body is the temple of the Spirit of God. Not only in the act of worship, in the person of Christ, but even in our individual selves as we live unto God, as we sing his praise, as we live unto his adoration and glory, our bodies become the place where heaven and earth meet. That is just almost too much, isn't it? 
what kind of people ought we to be? But that still isn't enough. Because think of what this anticipates. God coming, God meeting with his people. All of these things drive us forward to the end. Drive us forward with the Psalms to the very end of the end of the age. To the praise of God triune. To our dwelling with him in new heavens and earth. United in perfect righteousness. God coming to us, meeting with us, rejoicing in us forever that is the act that deserves praise god comes to you well verse 2 tells us that this is simply his character praise him for his mighty deeds praise him according to his excellent greatness why does he do this why these mighty acts of creation and redemption because he is in himself most excellent in all of his greatness he is not simply a god of power isn't this what people are looking for a powerful god they'd like somebody on their side he isn't just a god of power he is a god of grace he is the god who is in every way excellent better than we could conceive of unworthy of our best thoughts except those that are according to his word if you know anything of the god of the bible he deserves to be praised for what he is yes what he has done but what he is our shorter catechism so beautifully describes what god is and maybe some of the kids here even know question four what is god god is a spirit infinite eternal and unchangeable in his being wisdom power holiness justice goodness and truth And we can easily just hear those things and, well, take a little delight in them and then quickly move on. Friends, this is where the whole of everything praiseworthy comes together in God himself. Everything that is excellent, everything that is glorious, all that is worthy of praise is in God. And this is why all things that he has made are for his glory. All his redeeming work of condescending mercy in Christ is for his praise That's why the psalm ends this way. This is your God. These are his acts. This is then not simply a command to be heard with the ears of the law. Praise the Lord. And if you don't, shame on you. What kind of a person are you? What kind of a Christian are you? You forgot about Jesus today. No, friends. Praise such a God who comes to you in your weakness, your forgetfulness, your sins, your temptations, your trials, the darkness of depression, and gives you more reasons even there to praise him. Well, what keeps us from such praises? What keeps us from, sh- from actually opening our mouth in public to say what God is worthy of receiving? I think most of us, at least, when we think about evangelism, we think, well, you know, that's, that's kind of not my spiritual gift. Or maybe we think, I'm just sort of a shy person, and I struggle, you know, and, and we do struggle. But could it be, dare I say, and I want to prick you with this for a minute, could it be that the reason we don't speak the praises of such a God before a world that denies him is actually because we're prideful and we're worried about what other people are going to say. 
But whose praise is more deserving, ours or his? Whose adoration is called forth from this psalm? The God who even in those moments when you feel badly and you should have said something and maybe your neighbor didn't hear about Jesus, still comes to you, still comes with grace and mercy and peace coming with a Christ dying for such sins. And isn't that the death of pride? When we open our mouths to speak of a Christ who would love us, who do not speak well of him, and do not know him as well as we ought. This is his worthiness. This is even greater cause for his praise. I want to hustle into the last part of the psalm and observe that God is finally going to receive the praise of all things, all men, all creatures. But that praise only comes from a renewed heart, a heart that actually wants and desires and seeks after God, a heart that is really consumed with his worship. I love what Steve Lawson has said about worship. True worship is awesome. This is true because God is awesome. Authentic worship is the most soul-thrilling, heart-stirring experience any redeemed being can enjoy. There is nothing boring about worship because there is nothing boring about God. Is that true? Do we actually believe that? Well, the psalmist would drive you into that conviction by rousing up a kind of marching band, a performance, if you will. Here you have all these instruments, the great choir of praise expected to come into the last minute. Notice verses 3 through 5, all this musical accompaniment, all these instruments. And that should, as it were, kind of surprise us. What's happening with all these instruments Okay, maybe you think of an orchestra, maybe some of you have, maybe you love Beethoven, maybe you can remember the thrilling final chords of Beethoven's ninth as it all comes up to this grand crescendo. But why? We still need to answer that question, why? Because God intends to use even the inventions of men, their highest accomplishments for his praise. Think for a moment, where and when were instruments first invented? We read it in Genesis chapter 4. That's after the fall, isn't it? That it was Jubal who was the father of all those who played the lyre and the pipe. To put it into summary form, who invented instruments? The descendant of wicked Cain. It should actually surprise us. We come to this text. Here are the inventions of sinful men, and God receives adoration and praise through them. Do you see how even the wrath of man he intends to bring about for his praise? The greatest abilities of men in music and skill, aesthetics, accomplishments, will not accomplish any Tower of Babel. But your God, who comes down to you, will take those things, the best things that men think they've ever done, and not by them bring you up the stairs to heaven, but by them receive praise from an unworthy and helpless people through the crucified Savior. Your best abilities and mine should be brought into worship. The peak of our life is not going to be a certificate on the wall, but the act of adoring our gracious and worthy God. And so you find the instruments, and there are so many here, aren't there? 
There are really every occasion is reflected. There's the trumpet that would be used for summoning God's people, breaking camp. Think of the Exodus going through the wilderness. The lyre and the flute, which are not necessarily a specific sort of instrument, but you would hear them in village life. They're perhaps a wedding or something of this nature. You'd come along and hear these instruments. There is the tambourine and dancing, which go together. Think of Jewish or Middle Eastern dancing, where there's a kind of community delight in music expressed really about celebration. And then we end with symbols of two different varieties. And there's a kind of implication, perhaps, of war. Worship is warfare. There is a kind of overture to the creation in its unsubmissive nature. And to both demonic powers and unbelievers, there's notice God is coming. He's worthy of praise. He intends at last to bring all things together for that purpose. This is really what is accomplished in the worship of God. He is made known before all things and in all things, and he deserves the highest beauty of the best praise of all people, all skill. But do you notice verse 6 is the culminating moment? It's almost a sort of question. Where are men in all of this? We hear the instruments. We see the beauty of man's work. But will men actually sing to the Lord? Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. There's a kind of opposing scene to what we read in Psalm 150 in Daniel chapter 3. Think about the worship that Nebuchadnezzar commands of his statue. A herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. There is a competing worship. And the question is, will men praise? Will you and I praise the living and triune God? It is a striking feature at the end of Revelation as Babylon finally comes crashing down from all of its heavenly aspirations. It says in Revelation 18.22 that Babylon, Babylon will never again hear music. Only the church, only the church of Jesus will hear and enter into the adoring music of heaven. Let everything then that has breath praise the Lord. Do you breathe this evening? As long as you have breath, as much as you have breath, we ought to praise. We are those who have been redeemed from the destruction that was, ought to have been served out against God's enemies in Joshua. It says that they, God's people, dedicated in the land of promise, all those opposing forces to God, they dedicated to destruction all that breathed. That is where you and I ought to be. But the God who comes to us says, you breathe. Now breathe out my praises. Well, I quickly want then to bring you to further delight in this psalm. Notice how this is responsive. It's responsive to everything that God has done in all of history, in all of life, and particularly in his restoring victory through Christ. What does the resurrection of Jesus Christ, his ascension into glory, what does it call forth from a believing church? Praise and praise and praise. 
This is God's determination that his people would praise. And all through history, this has been the occupation of the church. Think of what the church has had to do to praise the Lord. Louis XIV banned the singing of the Psalms, and what did the Huguenots do? They went out into the forest and they sang them anyway. Bruce Hunt, one of our OP missionaries of long ago now, imprisoned by the Japanese in World War II. There he was, imprisoned for his faith, and he sang in his cell. Think of the early martyrs. Think, perhaps, of Perpetua. Maybe some of you know that name. As she walked into the amphitheater to face her death for her faith, she sang the Psalms. 1886, there were 32 young men in Uganda who were killed for their faith, and they went to their death singing hymns to God. All across the world, in the hardest moments, in the deepest persecution, in places like Nigeria and Iran and Iraq under ISIS and in North Korea, what is the church doing? Overthrowing, visibly, the kingdom and the power of Satan by the enthroning of Christ in his praises. This is what the people of God do, and this is the reason why you're called Mission OPC. Because this is God's intention for all that breathe. This is what we call all people to do as they shall at last. Philippians 2, 9 through 11 says, doesn't it? Christ has this name, this glorious name above every name, and every knee at last will bow and he will be praised. This is the end of all things. But that is not just a threat. That is something so beautiful and so thrilling that how could we allow our neighbors, our friends, lost in the dark, not to hear and to come and to be drawn. All who breathe, the God of the Bible, who is filled with wrath against sin and against all of our hardened hearts, yet calls to a world that will not praise him and says, come and praise me, come enter into your happiness, come delight. And dear friends, this is what God intends to do as you praise him. I want to close by giving you an anecdote from a writing by an evangelical, Nick Ripkin is his name, and he writes about Dimitri. Dimitri, he says, was a believer who was in prison for his faith. He was the only believer among 1,500 hardened criminals in a large prison. This is during the Soviet era. His tormentors were unable to break him, but singing gave him faith, gave him strength in the face of torture. Every morning at daybreak during 17 years in prison, he would stand at attention by his bed, face the east, raise his arms in praise to God, and sing a song to Jesus. And the other prisoners, he says, the reaction was predictable. They mocked, they laughed, they cursed, they jeered, they banged metal cups against the iron bars in protest, they threw food and feces to silence him and extinguish the only true light that was shining in that dark place every morning at dawn. And then the day arrived. When Dimitri left his cell to face execution, he was dragged down the corridor, and the strangest thing happened. Before he and his guard reached the door leading to the courtyard in his place of execution, 1,500 hardened criminals stood at attention by their beds. They faced the east, and they began to sing. They raised their arms to sing the song of Jesus. 
And his captors released his arms and stepped away from him in terror, and they demanded, Who are you? And our brother answered, I am a son of the living God, and Jesus is his name. Friends, as you and I praise the living God under all circumstances for the redemption that we have in Christ, for his mighty acts, for his covenant mercies, for all that he is, the world does see, and the world is called forth to praise. Be assured of this, that as you open your mouth to sing, to speak the praise of Christ, that's a word that will not return void. He will make even those who will not now praise him to bow. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we adore you. And with what weakness there is in us, we cry out for strength that we might give praise and honor and glory to our great God and Father through the Lord Jesus by the power of the Spirit sent into our hearts. Our great God, we pray as we long for the day when all things will give you praise that we now might do that and that you would receive from us the adoration you deserve even in this evening. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.